Oh, gracious Father, we are, again, just thankful for this moment where we get to go through the Psalms. And we ask just for a double portion of your blessing upon us. May your spirit uh, be alive in us, Lord. May you open our hearts and our minds to the beauty of the preached word. Be with us now, Lord. Help us to understand this text of Scripture and Asaph's life. Lord, we love you, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, you know, before I was um, making these announcements, I was scrolling through my social media feed because I was trying to get some of the baby names, especially from the Bragas. Um, but social media sites like, like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, have been, in general, good tools in our, in our, for our lives, and especially for the church as a whole. <clears throat> in fact, you know, before in the past, I've used Facebook for, for ministry updates uh, with youth groups in the past, and, <clears throat> and it also benefited us. Uh, you know, we'd share updates, share meeting times. Uh, right now, personally, I show it to, to family who are living far away in Australia and also in the Philippines. Uh, we like to show pictures of our daughter and so forth. Um, and so, for the most part, social media is a good, to, a good tool. However, social media could also, could also have a negative impact on us as well. And there are many articles written about this. Now, I'm, I'm not advocating for you to not use social media, but I'm just simply using it as an example. Here's what I mean. Social media gives the world a glimpse into people's lives, more so a one-sided view. And so, on one hand, we might follow our friends and family and their lives, but we also may follow big-time sports stars like Steph Curry or other popular celebrities in general. But have you ever asked yourself, have you ever sensed your own heart as you scroll through some of the pictures, some of the updates, just how your heart is reacting to all this? You know, Another example is you might be having a bad day. And so we scroll through our feeds and we see families on vacation, maybe new homes being redone, uh, celebrities buying the fastest cars, the most expensive jewelry. And for a moment, and just for a moment, maybe, maybe, we ask ourselves, what would it be like? What would it be like if I had this life? What would it be like if I had this fancy home? What would it be like if I had money like this sports star? Or what would it be like if I had a great marriage like this person on social media? Always happy. Or this loving family who's traveling the world, sold everything, and they're just living life. And so if that's you, maybe there are times where you felt bitter, angry, even jealous at times. Maybe because your life isn't going so well. Some of us have suffered greatly, yet we look around the world, the social media world, everything seems like all is good. Right? You go to church, you serve faithfully, you read your Bible every day. But for you, life is downright depressing at times. And so you ask yourself, 
you may ask yourself this, why am I suffering, but it seems like the world is not? Why am I suffering, but it seems like the world is not? And so I want you to know that there are many people in the Bible who have gone through this very same thing, this very same experience. And today, we look at a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph struggled with why others get, others get the good, but he got the bad. Yet, we're going to learn on how to respond when our souls are feeling somewhat unsatisfied with God. And that, that may be you today, unsatisfied. But before we jump right into our text, let me give you a brief background. Question is, who is Asaph? Well, Asaph was a musician from the tribe of Levi. In 1 Chronicles 6, it tells us that. 1 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 5, it tells us that he was appointed by David himself to serve in the tabernacle or the temple where the people would worship God. And he was basically one of the worship leaders during the time. And so Asaph would go on to pen not only Psalm 73, but he wrote Psalm 50 and Psalm 74 to 83. And so we look at a situation here in Psalm 73, and really what we see is we get a glimpse into Asaph's life. I think it's really his, his personal journal. Maybe, maybe it was sung, we don't know. But we see this godly worship leader who has a struggle within himself. Therefore, our psalm this morning is something we could all relate to in regards to the Christian life. Asaph tells us a story through this psalm. He was a Christian man devoted to God, but he struggled with something. And he presents his problem to God. He presents his problem to God. And so he starts off with this proposition. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piggyback off Asaph's proposition. Truly God is good to Israel. And he kind of laid it out there for me, for us. And so I'm going to copy that proposition, and I'll give you the aim of our text this morning. And it's truly God is good to, our pe to his people. Truly God is good to his people. That's Asaph's proposition, and that is my aim for us to see. And so we're going to go through this journey. It's about a 40-minute journey till we could actually clearly see this aim to be true. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, to those who are pure in heart. Everything may seem well because of this verse, this statement. But I also want us to look what he says next. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God is good, but I almost fell. I stumbled. I, I nearly slipped. Something was happening. He was falling. You know, as I read this, I was reminded of my, of my time in Bolivia where we would climb a portion of the mountains. N not, not climb. Uh, walk up a portion, a portion of the mountains um, to get to the Inca ruins. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we were, we were walking up the mountains, and we, we could, the car couldn't go any further, so uh, we had to start walking in, in our sneakers and in shorts in just really thick mud, and we were sliding all over the place. And there was a cliff, like, right next to us, literally, like, right here where the computer is. And Bolivians apparently don't believe in, in fences, so a big slip would have forced us right off the cliff, uh, but obviously we made it. We're here. 
But that's, that's the picture. That's what was going on in Asaph's life. It became hard. It became slippery. He was about to fall off a cliff. And so in the first part of verse 3, it gives us the general view of his problem. Look at, look at verse 3, the first part. Life became hard, for I was envious of the arrogant. Asaph saying is, I was envious of the arrogant. And so the question for us this morning, why was he envious of the arrogant? That's what Asaph will take us through today. That's what the text is going to take us through. In fact, the bigger question for Asaph is this. Listen here. The, biggest question, the bigger question for Asaph is this. Why am I suffering? But the people around me, the world, seem as if they have everything going for them. Let me say that again. Why am I suffering? But the people around me, the world around me, seem as if everything is going for them. And you might have that same question. The wicked lives, the wicked around you, their lives are perfect, yet they don't care about God. I'm hoping that bothers you because it bothered Asaph. And that takes us to our first point. First, we find that through his envy, we find Asaph's perception of the world. Asaph's perception of the world. And when I say the world, I really mean wicked, the wicked. Asaph sees the wicked and is similar to the world we live in today. Asaph's world is our world, and as we'll see in just a moment. And so this is a picture of what he envied. And the first view we find in Asaph's description is this. We find the world's prosperity. The world's prosperity. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In the world's prosperity, Asaph found a certain arrogance about them, which I'll talk more in a little bit. But one word we're familiar here with is prosperity. The word here is somewhat differently defined in the original languages, though, right? As, as we've come to know prosperity, we, we, we might be thinking in terms of success and wealth, um, which is true for the world in one aspect. But the Hebrew word here for prosperity is shalom, interestingly enough. And so most of us know the word shalom means what? Peace. In other words, Asaph is saying, I was envious of the wicked because of the peace that they have. There's a certain, quote-unquote, peace they have in their life. It's not wild and crazy, but they, 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 what they have, they, they have a life with no worries. Peace. No worries. Hakuna Matata. Sorry, I have a toddler. I just thought about that. Right? They're safe. They're secure. And so a lot of us could relate because we see all the suffering in the world. The millions without shelter, without water. We see all the orphans, some unaccounted for. Yet those who are arrogant have an easy life. They have an abundance of stuff. Therefore, just like Asaph, we look at the world around us and we see that the wicked have a safe and a peaceful life while others suffer around him. Asaph compared his life to the world's peace of life and probably saw the chaos and the suffering going on with his own people. But that was only the beginning. Not only does he see the world's peaceful life, their prosperity, but he sees the world's lifestyle. 
the world's lifestyle. Look at verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Asaph is saying life is easy for them all the way up until their death. They live this long and peaceful life, and they die without any hardship. He was envious about that. Not only that, but he says their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, this doesn't mean they weren't working out or they didn't have access to 24-hour fitness, but it means they were well-fed, right? They had an abundance of food. They never went hungry, never went poor. And we also find that the wicked never got in trouble, got into trouble. They did not suffer. Look at verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph did not see the affliction like he had with God's people. Right? God's people were exiles. They were slaves under Egypt. They were struck down time and time again. And Asaph was saying, that's not fair. That's not fair, God. Not only do we see the world's good life, but we also see the world's pride. Pride, I would say the world's pride and violence. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. See, Asaph saw the violence and the corruption, but he saw how the wicked were filled with pride as well. It doesn't say specifically what they did, but it's safe to assume that in their corruption, in the world's corruption, in the wicked's corruption, they were harsh to others. In other words, the wicked gained their riches at times by oppressing other people. They were, they were swindling other people. Right? It may not be as violent, at times, but maybe it was. We don't know. It doesn't say. You know, to give you an example, I recently watched a documentary on, um, on this man by the name of uh, Bernie Madoff. If you don't know who he is, uh, he committed the largest financial fraud in U.S. history, estimated over $65 billion. And he basically operated a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi schemes, which where he would take people's money, mostly for retirement, and he would say that it's going to be invested in the stock market so it could grow over time, up until retirement. But what he really did is he'd store the money or turn it around and generate returns for older investors while gaining more revenue for the new investors that are coming in. So basically it was just this endless cycle of money going in and money going out, but never really being invested. And then one day Madoff um, couldn't keep the Ponzi scheme going, and so he turned himself in after about 30 years of doing this. Tons of people were left without a retirement, were left without money. And so when they interviewed him, he says this. He says, I don't see myself as a bad person. And he said, he also said, I, I'm not greedy. He just wanted to make people happy in one sense. Look, he, he deceived normal, everyday people like you and I, teachers, veterans. They all suffered. They all were swindled. 
And I'm, I'm telling you this because it's a clear example of what wickedness and pride can do to a person. He wasn't physically violent, but he committed fraud and oppressed other people. The term violence covers them as a garment. It's me, it means they cover themselves with cruelty. The wicked cover themselves with cruelty. And because of pride, Madoff couldn't stop. Yet at the same time, he crushed other people's retirement hopes. With arrogance, he threatened oppression. Lastly, in this portion of our passage, we eventually see what I like to call their downfall. Their downfall. Verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretched through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So what's happening here? Because of the wicked's pride, they scoff at God because they feel like they don't need God. Life is easy for them. They continue in their ways while never getting caught. They set their mouths against the heavens. They don't care about God. There's no morality in their soul. Not only that, we find an interesting translation in verse 10. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. The NASB says this, therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. Now, I'm bringing this up because a lot of commentaries had difficulty in translating this from the, from the original text. But here's what I found. Here's what this means. If when people who claim to follow God fall into the hands of the wicked, they would eventually be taken out, taken advantage of. And Spurgeon says this, they would be squeezed or wrung out of all the juice out of their bodies. John Calvin states that many who had been regarded as belonging to the people of God were carried away by this temptation, the temptation by the world, and they were shipwrecked and swallowed up by it. In other words, people sought this easy life. They wanted in. They wanted in the wicked ways, yet they were taken advantage of as well. They were fooled. And so Asaph ends this portion with a summary statement in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And it's easy for us, as you read through this, to get angry. Because all of us could relate here. Suffering for Christians is one of the hardest experience, experiences to comprehend at times. Right? As Christians, we see the world suffering. As I mentioned, we see the poor, the needy. We see all the children. And then we also see the Christian suffering. Those who suffer physically. Those who suffer to proclaim his name like missionaries. You know, there are thousands of no-name missionaries and or churches who have suffered around the world for the past 2,000 years. But yet the wicked continue to prosper, and that is frustrating for Asaph. For us. Yet we, like Asaph, see the wicked always at ease and increase in riches. It may seem as if the wicked is prospering in this life, church. And just like Asaph, we could, put, we, we could become just as discouraged. You know, my wife and I, for the past 10 years, we've been receiving um, letters from missionaries in Italy. These missionaries, their name is um, Peter and Charisse Gasco. 
and their missionaries in Milan, Italy. Uh, they've been serving in ministry at, um, as missionaries together for over 25 years. In fact, he, he was one of the reasons why I entered ministry, because his endeavor to do missions. And I was like, I, I want to do that. And so for, for Thay and I, it was always a joy when we, we, we received these letters. We'd read them with eagerness. Sometimes we'd read them together. But a couple months ago, we received a letter stating that Peter's wife, Cheris, was battling cancer. But he left that letter saying the prognosis looked good. And I shared this with pray, at prayer meeting at the beginning of the month. Just last month, we received a letter from Peter again. And sadly, Cheris went home to be with the Lord. His wife, his ministry partner. And just, just to add to really the, the sadness of it all, they have a son who's a paraplegic. They have a daughter who battled drugs off and on. Yet Peter lost his wife. He lost his partner just recently. Missionaries serving God faithfully in Italy. And I want to read to you just the last two lines of his letter. The last two lines of his letter. He says this. After telling us that Cheris passed away, he says this, our commitment to the ministry will continue, but will not be the same without her. We will walk but with a heavy limp. Thank you for your prayers and love. Please continue to pray all the more to make up for her absence because we will need even more grace now. Thank you for your love. Peter Gasco. You know, we could hear a story like this and we could see the world continue to prosper while Christians continue to suffer. And we say it's not fair. It's not fair. Asaph saw the wicked he saw them prosper. He initially did not understand. Friends, we will not understand the suffering we encounter at times. But listen, we need to understand the bigger picture. And that's, where, what, that's what Asaph is going to take us through. Some of us may be slipping right now. But hold on. Asaph's story gets better. He begins to see his own heart. And just like every situation, I will counsel you, in your suffering, that you will see your own heart. And that takes us to our second point. I'd like to call Asaph's perception of himself. Asaph's perception of himself. Asaph's problem was, how was he to reconcile all that was happening to the ungodly and what was happening to himself? Let me say that again. Asaph's problem was was how was he to reconcile all that was happening to the ungodly and what was happening to himself? In other words, he's saying, this is the wicked, and I'm jealous because this is what's happening to me, Lord. It wasn't making any sense to him. And so he starts to work on his heart, like I mentioned. And I like to call Asaph's confusion. Really, this is his lowest point, Asaph's confusion. Let's, let's, think, let's think this through so we can see his confusion. He followed all the godly rules, right? 
He followed all the Old Testament laws. He had been innocent from what we know. He was pure in heart, as it says in verse 1 and also in verse um, 13. But he was really asking himself, is it, is it really worth it? Doing all the Christian things, is it really worth it? Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. He's saying, look, I'm following God, but life is painful. Have you been through that? Are you following God, but life is painful? Not only that, he's suffering through something. Look at verse 14. All the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. <clears throat> it doesn't tell us what he's suffering with, but we know that every morning, he's dealing with some type of pain. <coughs> Excuse me. When life is uneasy and suffering comes, for us, it feels like our hands are tied, our legs are tied, and we're, we're trying to swim. We're underwater, and we're struggling. Things are getting heavy for Asaph. It would be like telling ourselves this. Look, I, I read my Bible. I go to church. I fellowship with the saints. I'm dedicated to my family, my job. I pay my taxes. Yet life is still difficult. And others in the world are succeeding. Why is that, God? You may be doing all the right things at work, but not getting the promotions. You may be raising your family to the T, but your kids are not doing well. You ticked off all the Christian checkboxes but you're suffering day in and day out. You wake up in the morning and you're saying, oh no, not me, not again. You might be slipping, but hold on, hold on church because Asaph turns the corner here. I like to call Asaph's shift, his shift. This is where he turns the corner, verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a worrisome task. Although he almost stumbled, he did not forget his own testimony. You see, as a worship leader, he did not forget his own leadership duties. Therefore, he was quiet. He kept his mouth shut and remembered God's people. He was basically saying, my thoughts, my testimony could stumble others. He's talking to himself. Remember what we talked about last week? Instead of listening to ourselves, we need to be talking to ourselves. He's talking to himself. He's saying, wake up. What are you doing? There are people looking at you as a worship leader in the temple. More importantly, there are people looking at God right now. They're looking at your life, but they're looking at God. Not only does he remember his testimony, he was remembering God. Friends, you will come to a crossroads in your life probably multiple times and the thing you must remember is, first and foremost, God. In trying to connect a sinful worldview to his own worldview, Asaph comes to see God's perspective. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. That was the turning point. He saw the lives of the wicked and he saw his own life. But from the perspective of eternity, 
everything shifted from this point forward. Right? Everything just sort of, everything made sense. And as a pastor, we love to see that with your people, with our people, this paradigm shift, so to speak. Right? Things begin to click in place for the counselee. It's, it's like finding a tune. You know, sometimes you're, um, you're singing and you're so off base and your wife is laughing at you because you can't find that tune. But all of a sudden, you're brushing your teeth and you're like, oh, there, that's tune. There it is. It clicked just like that for Asaph. Right? Let me give you another example. It's like one of those pictures where it's like black and white dots and you're looking at it and they tell you to stare at it for like five minutes because there's like a monkey in the picture. And you're looking at it and you're like, I don't see it yet. I don't see it yet. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, okay, I see it now. That's so cool. Asaph heard and saw God at this moment. Everything clicked. He saw the right thing. He finally had a fuller understanding when God revealed himself in the sanctuary. Let me be clear. I don't think it was the experience of the sanctuary itself, but a revealed truth from God. Let me say that again. I don't think it was the experience of the sanctuary itself, but a revealed truth from God. Last week, I talked about how the church is a special place for us, for the people of God, and it is. However, experience is temporary, okay? Let me say that again. Experience is temporary. The truth, the Word of God, is what's going to enable you to understand more deeply about God himself. Look at this. Look at verse 16. Going back to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, There was an understanding he received. It wasn't an experience. Something was revealed to him in the sanctuary of God. It was truth. He understood when God revealed himself by virtue of his word. And I believe that the word of God will work its way into your heart and mine. And it will be the only way you are to change. It will be the only way you are to change is through the word of God. Because as Psalm 19 states in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Look, God's word is a sweet, sweet honeycomb. And we must digest it. We must take it all in. In doing so, we will see God. And we will change. And we will see the great reward before us. God will reveal his truth to you. And once you begin to understand, you'll experience your own paradigm shift, just like Asaph. You will see the world, but you will see God more differently. You will see the world. More importantly, you will see God differently. And that takes us to our last point. We've seen Asaph's perception of the wicked, his perception of himself. Lastly, we're going to go through Asaph's perception of God, his perception of of God. Asaph's struggle is now directed towards God's sovereignty. 
specifically is what I like to call God's sovereignty over the wicked. God's sovereignty over the wicked. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, you see what he's doing here? Asaph uses the same image to what he was going through, but now he acknowledges that it's God that directs the lives of the wicked. God directs the lives of his children, but he also directs the lives of the wicked, even if it may not seem like it. Let me say that again. God directs the lives of his children, but he also directs the lives of the wicked, even if it may not seem like it. There's no oops moments with God. You know what? History tells us that God will use wicked men to accomplish his tasks. History tells us that God will use wicked men to accomplish his tasks. Let me give you a lesson on church history. There was a man by the name of William Tyndale. And if you know how we have our English Bible today, part of it is because of William Tyndale. But do you know who also played a big role in getting the English Bible, the Bible that we have right now, printed for the people of the day? King Henry VIII. A wicked king in his own regard. Let me tell you, let me tell you how. In 1521, William Tyndale entered the priesthood, and his obsession was to translate the Bible into his people's language, into English. But King Henry VIII was firmly set against the English translation, right? He did not want scriptures into the hands of regular people. And so here's what he did. He exiled Tyndale from England. And so Tyndale, listen here, Tyndale, from England, he went to Germany in 1525. And he showed up at the door of, guess who? This is so interesting. Martin Luther. Right? One of the great founding fathers of the Reformation, almost. And this is where Luther's translations of the Bible into German aided Tyndale's translation into English. But you know what else happened in Germany 75 years later, or uh, before that? Before Tyndale arrived, have you ever heard of the Gutenberg Press? The printing press was invented so that the public could have mass-produced books as opposed to handwritten books. That happened 75 years prior to Tyndale's arrival. So back to 1525. Follow me here. Gutenberg's son, Peter Schoffer, published the first English translation in Germany. This is Gutenberg's son. Naturally, right, from printing the Bibles, the English versions, Tyndale wanted his people to have the English translation into their hands. So here's what he did. He smuggled back the English copies into England behind the king's back. Right? The king found out, and, he was trying, and the king was trying to burn all the English copies of the Bible. But it was just too much. Right? Bibles would end up in his, his, his bedroom. And he was so angry. But the public took interest and said, why are you burning all these Bibles? And you, you could say the rest was history. God directed a king, a wicked king, to exile Tyndale. And Tyndale met Martin Luther, got the printing press, printed the English Bible, brought it back to England, 
And we have our Bible today in English. And so Tyndale was martyred about 10 years later. And you know what his last words were? As he was being strangled, as he was being martyred, here's what he said. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. I remember this quote from church history class. And my professor would say, God can make a crooked man draw a straight line. God can make a crooked man draw a straight line. God is sovereign over the wicked. You may think God is absent when wickedness is around you, but take heart, gateway. God knows. God knows. Not only that, but the wicked's time will come. Look at the image in, in verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Their wickedness will not prevail much longer. You know why? Because it's like a dream. Anyone remember their dream last night? Maybe it's a little fuzzy. Maybe not. But that's how fast the life of the wicked will last. It's like a dream, just like that. It's there, it's gone the next moment. King Henry VIII died a grumpy, overweight man at the age of 55. His body was fat and sleek. The wicked man died. Second, in our text, we find God's relationship with his people. God's relationship with his people. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You see, Asaph admitted, when you're going through things and you're suffering, you're not thinking right. He says he was like an animal, right? He's just not thinking. When you're like an animal, you just, you don't think. You just do. You just do things. His mind wasn't straight. And then he, in the midst of his affliction, it became personal for him. Look, look what he says. He says, you continually, you're continually with me, God. You hold me. You guide me. You receive me. Entering into his sanctuary made Asaph understand God so clearly that he saw God with a fresh pair of eyes, so to speak. So church, the word of God should become so personal to you that when you approach God through scripture, you're like a child looking up to a father saying, I need you. When you open the word of God, you want to say, Lord, I need you. And here's the thing, when life isn't going right and we're acting like sheep, sometimes sheep without a shepherd, take heart, we have a shepherd that's guiding us. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? God will pursue you in your suffering, in your frustration, in your darkness, God will continually be with you. He will hold you. He will guide you. He will receive you as his own. God will bring you back into his sanctuary. The wicked are not his children. Therefore, he does not treat them the same. Lastly, God's presence in the end. We see God's presence in the end. The ascent of the last couple verses in the psalm reaches a climax from what we read. And this is really a very popular verse in our world, in the evangelical world. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my portion, my heart and my portion forever. In the end, Asaph understands that his only desire is God. There's no one in heaven but God. He doesn't want heaven. He wants God. He, desi- he doesn't desire the things of the world. He wants God. And here's the reason. When all is said and done, as we get older and our bodies and minds fail us, God will be our rock. That's the word for strength there. God will be our rock. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's been my best friend the past couple weeks in preaching both psalms, he says this, the whole essence of the psalmist's problem, in a sense, was that he had put what God gives in the place of God himself. Let me read that again. The whole essence of the psalmist's problem, in a sense, was that he had put what God gives in the place of God himself. That is our problem at times. We want to give God, we want what God gives us more than the giver himself. We want the abundant life, the great marriage, the great kids, the great job. Church, let me ask you, do you want God? Or do you want the things around you? If you remember last week, what what's the psalmist in Psalm 42 longs for is what the psalmist in 73 is now enjoying. Let me say that again. What the psalmist in Psalm 42 longs for is what the psalmist in, in 73 is now enjoying. God. Asaph has God. And the only way we're able to get to God, the only way we're able to have God is because he came to us first. Jesus Christ left heaven in order that he may seek and save those who are lost. Asaph experienced suffering, but you know what? Jesus Christ was the ultimate sufferer. If you long to be with Jesus Christ, you must repent of your own wicked ways and believe in him. In 1 Peter it says, As he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. Because of the death on the cross, we will be in his presence at the end. Now, let me give you Asaph's concluding thoughts, and I'll give you mine. This is Asaph's concluding thoughts. Asaph just kind of preached a sermon, right? He had a proposition. He ends with this. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good. There it is again. For me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph worked out his faith. He had to go through trial to come to his own conclusion. But in the end, he realized the wicked will perish. They're like a dream. And then it concludes with him telling all of all good God's works. It concludes with him praising God for protecting him. Right? Because he could have slipped off that mountain, but God held him fast. He protected him. He praised God for his goodness. Asaph began with the proposition that God is good to Israel. And he concludes that God that it is good to be with God. Now let me conclude with the illustration. You know, there's nothing, there's no better illustration than the Bible itself. And so I could not help but think, as I was studying Asaph, I kept thinking about Job. I kept thinking about Job. And I'm going to do just a flyover. I talked about Job a little bit Job last week, but I think Job is a perfect illustration for us as we close And so a lot of us know the story, right? We know that Job was an innocent man. He lost it all. He lost it all. 
Job took away his family. He, he, he hurt him physically. Or God took away all his family. He hurt him. But in verse 122, Job 122 says this, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so, as I mentioned last week, from Job, after Job, 33, Job 3, we, we usually skip through to the end. And people, people naturally like, dislike suffering, dislike suffering. And so we're sometimes tempted to, to compare ourselves to Job when we suffer, right? Here's the reason. We want the Job ending. We always want the Job ending. When you read Job, we're saying, I want the Job ending. I want everything that Job had. And so after the back and forth with his friends, it goes over 33 chapters in Job. Here's what happens, which I think is a climax of the text. Chapter 38. Chapter 38. In chapter 38 is when God speaks, right? It was like this dark cloud was hovering over Job. Then all of a sudden, the curtain pulls back, and here's God, and he talks to Job. I'm not going to read all of chapter 38 or 39, or 40. But it, it's funny, because after studying this, I went through this with, with, for, in Simeon Trust with Rod. Look at 38, verse 4. This is God talking, and this is God showing himself. He says, look, I'm sovereign, Job. Where are you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where are you, Job? He goes through, through all these motions here. He gives a lesson. God gives a lesson on his sovereignty, on God's sovereignty. God gives Job a lesson on his own sovereignty. And so if you read 38 and 39, he goes, he's, I'm sovereign over creation. I'm sovereign over the universe. I'm sovereign over all the animals, everything I created. God goes, he's, he's talking to Job. Follow me here. He's talking to Job. And he says, Job, I am sovereign over your suffering. And it took me so many years to figure this out. I finally figured out that all the suffering Job ha that happened to Job, it wasn't, it wasn't about Job. It wasn't about Job. You see, we're, we're tempted to want, again, like I mentioned, that Job ending. We want the social media life, the good marriage, a beautiful family, a nice house. We want to be blessed times 10 in the end. But listen, dear friends, Asaph finally understood just like Job did in the end. Read with me here. Job 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things that no, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did, did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known. Listen, look at verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, my eye sees you. The whole point in God speaking to Job is to say, it's not about you, Job, it's about me. It's always about God. Whether God gives you everything or he gives you just enough, whether your, heart, your, your flesh and your heart fail, God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. In your suffering, you will see God in the end. In your suffering, it's only God that matters. And you will be able to say, just like Asaph, God is good. Truly, God is good. May you praise him and tell of his works to others.
O gateway. Let us pray. Father, you truly, you are good. You are good to your people. It may not seem like that now for some of us who are suffering, for some of us who have maybe lost people, for some of us who are going through things physically. It may not seem like you are there. But Father, take us through life. Take us into your sanctuary where we are able to worship you, where we are able to hear the truth Open our eyes so that we could understand that it's never about us. It's never about our pain, our suffering, even though it does hurt. But in the end, we want to see you just like Job did, just like Asaph did. We want to see you. And we want to say God is good. You are good. Lord, be with our church family. You could take away the office. You can take away all these things, Lord. But we trust in your sovereignty. And we know that it's all about you. It's not about us. But you have brought Gateway together as a church body for this past six years. You have brought us into this sanctuary. The truth has been exposited to us so that we can understand. Lord, will you use this church to further your glory, your kingdom? And may you shake our hearts so that we could say you are good. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.